Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, for years we've heard the media industry's in serious trouble, and that's because that is. Sales of New Zealand fiction are down to an all-time low. Now, according to a recent newsroom article, sales of New Zealand fiction are dismal. New Zealand fiction makes up just 5% of the total market. Australia, where Australian fiction makes up 30% of total sales. What is going on? The government is being forced to fund new public interest reporting roles. The government unveiled the Public Interest Journalism Fund, $55 million for the media over three years. And recently it announced a contribution of more than 100 new jobs for journalists. Major media companies are asking to get into bed together just to secure their futures. Media giants NZME and Stuff are pondering their next moves after the Court of Appeal dismissed their appeal against the rejection of their merger. Returning to the story of the Vodafone and Sky TV uh, proposal for a merger, this is a developing breaking story. This morning they have now agreed that they are definitely looking at this. And just last week it was announced Aotearoa's two biggest public broadcasters would be merging, influenced at least partly by a perceived rise and mis- and disinformation. The government is pressing ahead with its plan to fold TVNZ and RNZ into one mega-media behemoth and the biggest broadcasting shake-up this millennium. Now, often it's the internet that's blamed for the industry's decline. The narrative goes that Facebook and Google have relentlessly sucked the advertising lifeblood out of media, forcing companies to sensationalise and chase clicks in a moribund race to the bottom. But the internet is also providing new publishing models which have the potential to keep talented writers in gainful employment while also allowing people to curate their own media feeds. Models like Substack. Substack is an online newsletter distribution platform co-founded by New Zealander which has made some big waves overseas, particularly in the US, for recruiting superstar writers and journalists from legacy publications, pretty much empowering them to create their own individual media companies. And now it's starting to snap up established New Zealand writers too. Today on the podcast, former spin-off parents editor Emily Wrights and former NZ Herald journalist Dylan Cleaver, both of whom were recruited by Substack, on making the switch from the mainstream media to something new, how it's panning out for them, and whether the internet is finally being used for good in the world of written journalism. I um, went to what was then AIT, did a journalism course in 1996 and was lucky enough to go straight from that journalism course into a job on a uh, national newspaper, which was Sunday News. Dylan Cleaver is the former sports editor-at-large at the New Zealand Herald, who now operates a Substack newsletter about sport called The Bounce, which began last year. Uh, straight into the sports department there. Had a couple of years there, then kind of mucked around in different departments, tried my hand at sub-editing, uh, went overseas, uh, came back and uh, did a relatively brief stint at Sunday Star Times before landing at the uh, New Zealand Herald in 2004. So, yeah, that's it's not a particularly detailed career, but yes, yeah, sports sports journalism has kind of been in my blood since nineteen ninety six, really. So you went to you went to Substack twenty twenty one. Is that is that when Substack sort of came along? Yes, yeah, it did. Um, my last day at the Herald was Black Friday, August thirteen, and I th- about a month later, I did my first Substack newsletter. 
obviously I knew I was going to Substack before I left the Herald. It wasn't some sort of uh, midlife crisis. Oh, what do I do now? Uh, there's this new platform. I'll give that a go. So I had it um, planned some place to go to Substack. But yeah, September 2021. I was on maternity leave. My second baby was three weeks old and I had a really small gap between my two kids because, like, I'm not good at contraception. Emily Wrights is the former editor of the spin-off's parents section. Her Substack newsletter, Emily Wrights Weekly, about the experiences and politics of being a mum, also began in 2021. And I... Started as a blogger, I guess, writing about having two very little kids at home. And I did not know, but blogging can be like really popular online. (laughs) I sound kind of ridiculous, but I had like, I wrote a blog post and it had like a million hits overnight and it was terrifying, but it kind of just set this this trajectory, I guess, for my career. And I haven't really stopped just doing that. So I just write about having kids, the politics of having kids and motherhood. And now I have a newsletter that I've had for like two years and that's how I earn my income now. For people who aren't familiar with Substack as sort of a concept, can you just kind of briefly explain what it is and how it works? Yeah, sure. It's a um, it's a newsletter platform. Anyone can join Substack as a writer. You just need to set up your own newsletter. It's a, it's a really user-friendly template and it drops emails into subscriber inboxes. So it's, it's quite an intimate way of uh, getting your work across. Let's just say you have 300 people that want to follow your work. You're essentially, at the click of a button, dropping 300 newsletters into inboxes. You hope that word of mouth or uh, a lot of people use social media. I'm absolutely useless at social media to, to spread the to spread the word. And yeah, that's that's basically it. You are writing what you want to write for an audience that wants to follow you. So it's really quite an intimate way of doing journalism. At first, I didn't really get it because I don't know why anybody would want a newsletter. But the thing that I've realised now is the newsletter, like, so you get sent, writers sign up to Substack and Substack's sends out on the writer's behalf a newsletter to everybody who subscribes to their newsletter. But the thing is you can click on the newsletter and it takes you to the standalone page for the writer and you can respond to the piece and comment to other people. So in a way, it's a lot like the old blogging platforms like WordPress and Blogger and that type of thing because it's just a bunch of people who've chosen to follow that writer and read their things like it doesn't have the discoverability of being in the Herald or a mainstream media platform because you sign up to the people you want to read so it's a smaller audience but it's a far more engaged audience from that people can choose to be free subscribers or paid subscribers they can pay monthly or annually and the money goes to the writer Substack takes their cut and the rest goes to the writer Substack was founded in San Francisco in 2017, the brainchild of software developers Chris Best and Jairaj Sethi, and this guy. A new kind of commercial media can not only survive, but actually thrive. To get there, the world just has to realise that advertising is not going to be part of that future. Hamish McKenzie was raised in Alexandra in central Otago. He was the editor of Critic, Otago University's student magazine, in 2004. McKenzie worked as a freelancer and then a writer for The Listener before becoming an in-house writer at Elon Musk's company Tesla in 2014. He left that job a year later to write a book. 
In 2015, he went to work for another startup, Kick Messenger, where he met Best and Sethi. Two years later, the trio founded Substack. The company now has an estimated value of close to a billion New Zealand dollars. Over the past couple of years, some notable writers have given up plum gigs at big media outlets to join Substack. The director, Michael Moore, has one, the musician and writer, Patti Smith, and many high-profile US journalists, Glenn Greenwald and Dan Rather and Matt Taibbi, are all on the platform. More than half a million people have a paid subscription to a Substack newsletter, and the top 10 writers on the site collectively make nearly $30 million a year. New Zealand writers don't have the same audience base as the US, of course, but there are some big names on Substack. Bernard Hickey's newsletter The Kaka, for example, and David Farrier's Webworm. Now, Dylan Cleaver mentioned earlier that anyone can start up a newsletter, and anyone can, but Dylan and Emily both joined in different circumstances. They were approached by the company itself. It came through an intermediary, really. One of the Substack founders is a guy, Hamish McKenzie, who's a New Zealander. Mm. And he got wind of the fact that I was looking for a change and we arranged a, a Zoom meeting. And, yeah, he said that he'd be interested in offering me a, a deal to come over and join the platform. And uh, from my perspective, it was the right time. It was a fairly compelling deal in that it took a lot of the stress out of, I guess, the decision to go to go freelance is always fraught, especially in this kind of day and age, uh, where you just wonder whether you will actually get enough revenue to make it work. Uh, so the deal that I got with Substack was, it's called Substack Pro, and it essentially pays me a salary for the first year to, to establish myself. And yeah, it was, he was the right person offering the right opportunity at the right time. Duncan Grieve from the spin-off, he kind of came to me about doing a newsletter. I was writing sort of a weekly column for the spin-off and it was great, but I had previously been editor of the spin-off parents, a job that I really loved, but it was, it's really hard to get sponsorship and um, that type of thing for something that's just for parents. So that editor role had kind of finished up and I was just writing uh, column each week for the spin-off and I was constantly complaining to Duncan and everybody else about these terrible marketing jobs I was doing like you know at one point I was like marketing for a sex toy company it was just such a bizarre time and I think they just got really sick of me talking to them about how oh my god I've got to sell dildos this week and um so I think they were like let's try and figure out a way for Emily to make money so she stops hassling us um <laughs> No, I think that, yeah, Duncan just was trying to... I think he's kind of always believed in my writing from an early place. And he was like, I really reckon newsletters are the future. And I was like, I would never, ever sign up to a newsletter ever in my entire life. But I did it because he's generally been really right about the trajectory of people's careers. And he believed in me. And so I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. So I started it then... Um, while also doing contracting jobs. And at the beginning, I was really happy with how many subscribers I sort of immediately got. It was really nice to have people straight away say, oh, hey, I've been reading your stuff for years and I've never paid for it. This is a nice opportunity to pay for it. But I guess with newsletters, you have to go through this really uncomfortable, shitty patch where you're not earning that much 
but your output is really massive. Like you have to write a lot to keep the newsletter going, but you don't have enough subscribers to quit your day job. Once I started going on my own with it, it started to really kick off. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is earning me enough that, you know, life isn't so desperate week to week being able to afford things. And then eventually Hamish um, McKenzie, who's like the co-founder of Substack, he came to me and said, you should do this full time. And I think that I've been told a lot to do writing full time. And I'm always like, yeah, but I have to pay my rent and I have two kids and my husband's a teacher aide, you know, like, do you know what teacher aides earn? Mm -hmm. So I've always needed an income outside of writing because it's writing is just so precarious. So he said, we'll pay you what we think you'll get from subs to if you give up your day job and just focus on that. And so that's what I did a year ago. And now I earn enough not to do a thousand shitty marketing jobs. Now I just write and I never thought I'd get here. It's the most wonderful thing. At that point in your career at the Herald, you know, you've been working for what, close to 25 years. Um, yeah. At, at a series of national legacy publications. Some people spend their whole careers and, and don't get to that kind of level. You're riding the crest of your career at that point. Was it that you were dissatisfied with work in that legacy media environment or was it that you were excited about the possibilities of new media or was it something in between? Yeah, it actually is genuinely. I know this sounds awfully fence-sitting, but it was something a little bit in between. As I said, I'd worked for The Herald since 2004. I'd Mostly loved my time there. The Herald were very good to me. I was I had a lot of what you would consider plum jobs. Uh, when I left the Herald, I was sports editor at large, which to a certain extent meant I could set my own agenda and kind of chase, I guess, the stories that I wanted to chase. There was there was no real pressure on me to get involved in the day-to-day match reports and the preview review type situation. But I had noticed over, I guess, the last five to maybe even 10 years of my time there that there was a decreasing commitment to sports journalism. I felt that anyway. Uh, They might argue that that wasn't the case, but I think you look at it and Radio Sport was pretty unceremoniously shut down. Radio Sport has been taken off air indefinitely, NZME which owns the station, pointed to the cancellation and suspension of virtually all local, national and international events and competitions. When the pandemic hit in 2020, the sports desk was the first to get really badly affected by that. I think four sports journalists and an already decreasing team had, had lost their job pretty quickly. We weren't sending reporters to those massive events like the Olympics anymore that the previous two olympics we didn't send a reporter to so i i felt that you know the the company's commitment to sports journalism was was flagging um i knew there were reasons for that and i i you know i wasn't especially bitter about it but i kind of did think well you know if the commitment to sports journalism is decreasing where does that leave me and at the same time you know, I think we've mentioned it before, 25 years is a, is a long time to be in legacy media. And I thought, well, if I don't make a change now, if I don't try something new, when am I going to try it? Every year you stay somewhere is, I guess, a year that makes it harder to to test the waters and do something different. Many types of media, particularly big media behemoths, seem to anger people 
I'm curious about whether you think, whether the system offered by Substack, where you pick and choose who and what you kind of sign up to, is maybe a good way of sort of chilling that out a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. But where it gets, I guess, a little bit tricky in that is that um, there's a lot of criticism, I guess. Of, uh, we've seen it through the pandemic. We see it through when there's global conflicts, is that more and more people are, are selecting the news they get from their friends on Facebook. This is actually an interesting point Dylan makes. Substack has almost no filters on who can start up a newsletter, and this has led to a lot of criticism from people who argue it can be used to give a platform to hateful views. Graham Linehan, for example, the TV writer and director, has a controversial Substack page with thousands of subscribers, which has been regularly described as anti-trans hate speech. The writer Jude Allison Sadie Doyle has criticised some of the business decisions Substack's made, saying it's famous for giving massive advances to people who actively hate trans people and women. For its part, Substack says the question of who gets pro deals is a business decision, not an editorial one. In a blog post, Hamish McKenzie wrote, We don't commission or edit stories. We don't hire writers or manage them. The writers, not Substack, are the owners. No one writes for Substack, they write for their own publications. And it does have content guidelines. You can't publish porn or erotica on there, and you can't publish work that incites hate or encourages harassment. But these are certainly not free from controversy. So there's a lot of criticism there, and I can understand that. You could argue that maybe Substack is just a more sophisticated way of just self-selecting the news that that you want to hear. Yeah. I, I still think there is a massive place for that big legacy media, that kind of, I guess, what's meant to be neutral media. The Substack, I, I think, so, don't get me wrong, it's a wonderful platform and it's a great place to go and find really interesting stuff, but I'm not sure that it will... Um, I'm not even sure if its aim is to really democratise, I guess, the news function. Yeah. You're not really trying to compete with these big outlets, are you? You know, you, I mean, you can't. No, I'd be stupid too. You're an enrichment of the media ecosystem in a way. You know, you're another flower being being introduced to the garden. Well, that's a very nice way of putting it. And I hope I am seen as that way. And look, I, I still have massive respect for those people that work in sports journalism, legacy media. And part of, I see actually part of the role of my newsletter, and this is, this is quite an important point actually, is to direct people. Uh, direct my subscribers in the direction of the some of the um, great sports journalism we still see on the sites. I know that some people get frustrated because they feel there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, I guess chaff and not much wheat, but there's still a lot of great sports journalism out there. And if I can kind of help point people in that direction, then I feel that's an important part of my role. There's an interesting quote from a New Yorker profile of Candace Bushnell, Candace Bushnell, who wrote the Sex in the City book. She wrote, um, she was a columnist in the 90s. She wrote, in the 90s, it was a real time for media. I worked for Vogue writing a column and I got paid $5,000 a month. This was a time where writers were getting a Vanity Fair contract for six pieces and $250,000 a year. And this is the crucial point. People valued writing. It wasn't considered something everyone can do. And now because of the computer, Everyone has to do it, so we think everyone can do it. What did you make of that quote? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting because I remember when with blogging, there was this whole thing about, um, oh, everybody's a blogger and blah, blah. And I always used to think, well, doesn't it just sort itself out because people either read it or they don't? And so I had this really interesting thing where, you know, like there would be um, dude bloggers, like guys who were bloggers, who would be completely dismissive of my writing or any other writing and call it sort of mummy blogging and be like, this is fluff, this isn't real writing, not what we do, what we do is real writing. And my thing was always like, well, the proof is in how many people read my writing versus how many people read your writing. And what I've found now is those same guys who were always like, you're not a real writer, this isn't real writing, anybody can do it, anybody can be a blogger they're not earning any money from their writing and I am. The quote, that, that quote that I read before, oddly enough, it, it kind of, it made me think of you a little bit, particularly about the, the writing that you did um, in your in your early, earlier days when I first started reading you at the spinoff. Because I remember sort of a recurring theme was this kind of question about whether you felt that you were the writer in that situation or the person with the computer. Mm. And I'm curious about whether landing that Substack deal helped convince you that you were actually, you were the writer. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I have definitely, I've really struggled with, you know, am I just... I, a lot of my thinking for a long time was, am I a dumbass with a computer or am I a writer? And I think that the Substack has been super validating because one of the things that I always thought was, well, if I was good at this, I would earn enough to make it a living. And that was always my thing if you can't earn enough writing that you have to have a side job, maybe you're just not a good enough writer. And I thought that for a long time, but I think as well, the reality is just that we don't pay very much for writing, especially women writing. And we don't pay much for opinion writing and books don't make much money. Like Rants in the Dark was a bestseller for like, I mean, it was like six weeks of being a, you know, the number one book. And, it, and you know, that isn't enough. You have to have a play as well and you have to have a second book and now a third book to keep going, to keep having enough and you have to do speaking events and all that. And it is a grind and everything. But I think now I've accepted that that's the case, that it's not some huge failing in me that I couldn't make a living from it. I think I was just waiting for something like Substack to come along. And yeah, I, I do feel like a writer now. I do feel like I can put writer as my job. And that's pretty, that's pretty great. Like it's certainly better than dumbass with a computer. <laughs> that's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Emily Wrights and Dylan Cleaver. Matewa. Te